0: Today, there are 2 million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. This
1: is the
0: French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. And today's guest is John Toussignon. Executive Director of the Franco-American Center uh, based out of Manchester, New Hampshire. Um, this is really cool for me because I've actually I've said earlier and a bunch of times on this podcast that there does seem to be like a, a rebirth, a re-energizing of the Franco-American population, especially in Manchester. And I think there's a bunch of reasons for this. I, I said before, I think the work of David Vermette has been super important. But if you talk to the people in southern New Hampshire... As far as why there's new excitement, new energy in the Franco-American community, the answer you get over and over again is because of the work of John Toussaint So when we had this podcast, it was absolutely crucial that we get him. So, John, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you, Jesse. That's very generous.
0: Now, how did you—first of all, what's your background? Where did you grow up?
1: Well, I grew up here in um, Concord, New Hampshire, born in Manchester, grew up in Concord. Uh, My grandparents from both sides of my family came from Quebec. And uh, so I am a second generation immigrant, and uh, that's what really turned me on to the whole Franco-American, French-Canadian experience.
0: Sure. Now, did you speak French in the house, like growing up?
1: No. In fact, it was funny. My uh, parents uh, didn't speak any French at all. Really. My my grandparents on both sides spoke French, but uh, when they came down here, like so many families, they said to learn English to be successful. Of course. And so they really pushed their children to learn English, uh, kind of to the detriment of their French studies. So when I was uh, 14, I had to choose, am I going to take Spanish or am I going to take French? I looked back, I said, well, my heritage, my grandparents, they're French, I should take French. So in a lot of the households, Parents would speak in French so the kids wouldn't understand what was being said. Of
0: course. Yeah, I think Mike saw some of that growing up. You know,
1: but uh, in my house, I spoke French with my friends so my parents wouldn't know what was being said.
0: That is very funny. All right, very cool. So how did you go from that background then to where you've, I mean, you've worked for a number of different organizations where you've clearly dedicated your life to telling the Franco-American story?
1: Well, there's been a lot of uh, differences. I, when I first uh, went to uh, college, I kind of fell in love with French and the whole Quebec experience. I worked several summers at a uh, camp up in Quebec, and that okay. really gave me the uh, taste of the French-Canadian uh, culture up there. And I absolutely loved it. Where was the, the camp? camp? Yeah. It was in a place called Sainte-Foy which is uh, just outside of Quebec City. Gotcha. And so that was great. I, I had fallen in love with French and uh, and took it through college. So when I got out of school, I uh, decided to become a French teacher. Yeah. And spent uh, six years at the uh, high school level, one year of middle school. We don't have to talk about middle school. Let's just <laughs> say God bless anyone who can do middle school teaching.
0: That's awesome. My, that's my mom, in fact. Uh, but I'm curious now because it's interesting because you had the family – from Quebec, but I'm guessing the French that you learned in the schools we hear is more of the Parisian French? I mean, did you notice a difference when you went and worked back at the camp
1: over those summers? Well, absolutely. There's some dialect differences. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would say that the French that I speak is uh, one-third French from France, one-third <laughs> French from Quebec, and one-third French from Manchester, New Hampshire. Sure. And- you know, it's, it's one of those things that uh, I think that there was a lot of pressure at the time when I was growing up that you should try and speak French like you're speaking Parisian French. Sure. And fortunately, now today, I think that there's more of an understanding of different dialects and the value each dialect brings, the richness it brings to the sure. language.
0: Sure. No, that's cool. But um, the teachers you had in school, were they from Quebec or are they... Or they like yourself who learned it once they started going to school?
1: Uh, A little of both. I had had two great teachers in the Concord school system. One of them was uh, Roland Odette de De la Pointe. And he (laughs) was from France and spoke with a very uh, Parisian French accent. Uh, And I had another great teacher, John Boucher who was from Quebec and spoke awesome. with more of a Quebec accent. So so I got a little of both when sure. I was going through my uh, early formative years.
0: That's awesome. So you got exposed to kind of everything. So now, where did you start... When was the first, I guess, Franco-American organization that you really started working for? Like this was your actual job.
1: It really was the uh, ACA, which was uh, known at the time as the Association Canado Americaine. Sure. And um, that was a major organization uh, for over a hundred years, formed in 1896 uh, in Manchester to help the immigrants who needed life insurance benefits. My job was not, fortunately, dealing with life insurance because insurances don't really excite me, but promoting French does, and sure. I was involved there working at their foreign language camp. That was really the first uh, opportunity I had to kind of see the larger picture of French in New England.
0: Gotcha. Now, this is cool because I want to talk about the ACA for a little bit because I actually mentioned it in our intro episode, the one we called episode zero, it was a huge deal. Uh, my grandmother... Uh, did some work for the ACA at a time when it was considered like a big deal to be able to get in and work for the ACA. Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, they took a lot of pride for people who work for the ACA. It was huge. Um, So what else? I mean, you talked about the insurance piece, but I honestly didn't know that they ran camps. I mean, what other kind of, I know there was like a social structure, like a hangout location, the basement or something. Like, what was this ACA like really about?
1: Well, great. You know, it formed first out of necessity Uh, with an insurance focus because the uh, millwork that a lot of French Canadian immigrants were doing was uh, dangerous, and they weren't getting insured by the English-dominated insurance companies. Gotcha. So consequently, the um, ACA was formed to help provide an insurance benefit for the French Canadian immigrants and uh, started out kind of passing the hat and <laughs> having a big kitty there that sure. they could draw from, and then gradually became more uh, focused on uh, long-term life insurance policies gotcha. that really saved a lot of the uh, French Canadian immigrants from financial ruin.
0: Oh, that's very cool. And but they, but they did have other arms, right? Or did, was it just? But well, um. You were involved with basically just an insurance kind of
1: company. No, quite the contrary. Uh, the other piece that was related to the uh, ACA was uh, the fraternal side of right. the organization. That's right. okay. It was formed as a fraternal benefit society, much like the Knights of Columbus and gotcha. uh, and a number of other societies, and each has a social mission. And the mission of the. Uh, So the mission of the ACA was to uh, maintain that connection between families that lived on both sides of the borders and keeping that culture alive down here in New England so that people would still feel their connection to their heritage in Quebec.
0: Interesting. So did you see a lot of... I don't know. I mean, I guess you hear sometimes of letter writing or flat out visiting during summers. Was that still very common when you were for the ACA where they would go back and hang out with their cousins in Quebec or their cousins from Quebec would come and hang out in Manchester?
1: A little less so by the time I get to that point, even though I probably look like I mean <laughs> not, that not much. It's, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but no, there was still an active social structure there when I came on board to the ACA I started in 1989 working at the camps, sure. but then after doing my career in teaching, I went back to work full-time. I was the director of fraternal services, which meant that I oversaw the 46 chapters spread out throughout eastern Canada and the uh, New England states promoting French culture in their communities.
0: There are 46 chapters of the ACA, is that Correct. So, wow. So, I I didn't even realize that the ACA was all over the place.
1: The home office was right in Manchester, as you probably knew.
0: I knew where that was, but I didn't know it was part of a a bigger organization, honestly. Uh,
1: Yeah, there was uh, all local chapters in their communities, all volunteer-run, and uh, they were trying to maintain that connection both linguistically and culturally in in their own milieu.
0: That's awesome. Very cool. Now, after you left the ACA, there was still one other step before... The Franco-American Center is actually not the next organ- Franco organization. You well, st- there start are about 20 for. steps, but we won't get into all of them.
1: I know that we've got limited no. time. But what I can say is um, after I left ACA in the mid-2000s, I um, started my own business, Partnership Frontiers. Awesome. And um, what I did with that, again, still using my French, still using my cultural uh, identity, was working with Canadian companies that were exporting into the New England market. Yeah. Uh, primarily in the building products arena, but in other arenas as well.
0: And your, I guess, the role of your company was kind of like a almost like a go-between. Was it? Was it to facilitate that process? Is that e- what?
1: Exactly, providing them a little difference in marketing support, providing them a little. Um, Assistance with uh, relationship development, and sometimes the ability to have that French language sure. that could help smooth over discussions between non-English speakers and non-French speakers.
0: Gotcha. No, do we still see? Is that still something that's? Because you don't again, you don't hear that all that much about it. That back and forth of businesses coming to to work over in New
1: Hampshire. Well, it's funny you don't you don't necessarily hear a lot. Unless you're working in trade in yeah, New you know, Hampshire, because the largest trading partner with New Hampshire is the province of Quebec. That's
0: awesome.
1: Uh, so there's an em- enormous amount of trade uh, going on on both sides of the borders to say nothing of our tourism industry. Of course. Uh, which, is, which is huge.
0: In, in- I think that hopefully that's another episode we'll get to later on because we're even trying to push that. There's a
1: whole tourism program
0: that we're trying to get For sure. throughout New England, which is going to be super neat. All right. So we've got a couple of organizations now. You've got the ACA. You've started your own thing, working with companies in Quebec. Where do we go from there?
1: I was fortunate that I uh, was uh, involved with the Franco-American Center for uh, a number of years. I was a student at the Franco-American <laughs> Center back in the uh, early 1990s. And, of course, the center's been around since 1990. So okay. we're coming up on 30 years uh, of existence and celebrating French in our communities. But um, I came on board at, back in uh, 2013 Got as you. executive director have since been working to continue to keep that culture and that excitement alive.
0: That's awesome. Now, obviously, we're talking a lot about the Franco-American Center because it is such a huge deal uh, in Manchester. That's how I ended up getting involved. It's the reason why this podcast exists. So what is the mission of the Franco-American
1: Center? Well, the Franco-American Center is promoting French language, culture, and heritage. So if it has something to do with one of those three things, we probably should have a hand in it or we already do. Uh, that's simply where it's at. French from Quebec, French from France, French from any of the 80 countries of the world that uh, have French as an official or a second language. And, uh, and even for people who don't speak any French, but have some love of the culture, the sure. music, the food, uh, the art, uh, we're there to celebrate all those things. And the fact that French heritage didn't die off in the 1950s or the 1970s or 2000. It's still a heritage that exists and is being built year after year. So we celebrate the heritage that we had. Sure but also where are we going to? Yeah,
0: and that's actually that's going to be how I hope to end this discussion because I think it's super fascinating. Um, But what kind of events? Like, If somebody wants to get involved with the Franco-American Center, what are they getting involved with? What does the Franco-American Center do?
1: First of all, I'll say that we're a volunteer-based organization. We have one and a half employees. The uh, Franco-American Center uh, (laughs) does activities promoting so many different things that we're always looking for volunteers to help out. Of course, one of the things that uh, we started and you talked about it was uh Putsin Fest. Sure. Tim Bollier has done a tremendous job there. And of course, with Tim, last year, we had 50 volunteers that were involved in that event. We uh, have a Franco-American Heritage Day that's going to be coming up. We have a lot of lectures. Uh, we have films. We have uh, social events like Mardi Gras and my favorite, Halfway to Mardi Gras, which we do blast. in the summer when you don't have to wear a, a parker to celebrate. But uh, essentially, if it has something to do with our culture, and that means our, the French community, globally— then uh, we want to celebrate it and we want to be involved.
0: Sure. And I know that a big piece of what the center does is like an educational side because you guys have classes, correct?
1: Absolutely. We have classes for adults and for children at all levels of language learning. Uh, We have a traveler's French class, which is great for people who don't know any French but are thinking about traveling to uh, some other country or French-speaking region. And we have camp programs for children in the summer. We have a camp program for um, students that want to learn French. And also, since last year, Camp Bienvenue, which is a uh, program focused on helping first-generation Francophone immigrants to get more settled and familiar with the Manchester area.
0: Now, this is cool. I do want to touch on this a little bit because I think this is a very, very awesome program that I, again, didn't know about until I got involved with the Franco-American Center. Um, For people who may not be super familiar with Manchester, New Hampshire, for years, we've been a refugee settlement place. Correct. So we got all kinds of people coming from all over the world and quite a few come from Francophone countries. And because of that, the Franco-American Center kind of helps out this population um, and is able to talk to them in their native language, which they may not get somewhere else. So what does this camp uh, program look like for these kids?
1: Well, it's a, it's a really exciting program because we're bringing them out into the community. It, it's three hours a day for a week-long program. We start the program off with lesson, an introductory lesson And uh, then we bring them out into the community to visit a place that relates to that lesson. So we've gone to the Palace Theater, the Courier uh, Museum. We've gone to uh, the Fisher Cat Stadium and other places as well, so that they not only are getting a chance to practice their English in their new community, but also getting a chance to know their community and see the resources that are available to them.
0: That's awesome. So, I mean... Again, tons of events for people who have interest. Um, you got you got speakers come through there. You got talked about Putsin Fest is a huge deal. We get the camp, Bienvenue. we get the parties for Mardi Gras, the parties for halfway to Mardi Gras. Just a ton of events going on in Manchester. Uh, and now one thing I do want to touch on because um, again, I didn't know until I got involved with the Franco. American Center, is that, again, we're a ways away from March now, but March is a big deal for the Franco-American Center. So what,
1: Absolutely.
0: And I know your schedule is absolutely nuts come March. So what does March look like uh, for the Franco-American
1: Center? Well, March is exciting for us because it's uh, le mois international de la francophonie, International French Month. Uh, that started out a number of years ago as a day. that it became a week, and now it's spread out across the entire month with activities, social, cultural events. We've had artists, authors that have come. We've had um, musical performances during that month, and uh, all sorts of uh, academic and social opportunities for people to learn about the various French influences from around the world.
0: And what I think was kind of cool, because I was able to uh, go to a couple of these this year is that, well, that, the Franco-American Center is the one organization that I've been able to hook up with. We're not alone in New Hampshire. A uh, couple of events were involving the, the you Club, which I know you have some interaction with before. Absolutely.
1: The Richelieu Club was founded back in the 1950s. I want to say that uh, Manchester was uh, perhaps the first of the uh, Richelieu Clubs in the United States. I'm sure someone will get back to you and <laughs> yeah, correct like, me. but
0: if, if that's not right, we'll hear about
1: but, it. Sure. Uh, but for sure. Um, and the Richelieu Club promoting French and the uh, aid to uh, underprivileged children. Gotcha. So you you can't beat that mission. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, they still are uh, locally involved in a number of communities. Uh, all of their activities are held in French. Gotcha. But um, but as we saw uh, in Nashua uh, this past uh, March, they also welcomed in people that were non French speakers to come to activities that uh, they organized that reached out to promote more of the cultural and heritage aspects.
0: And I think that's that's something that would be uh, probably news to a lot of people, to know that there are organizations still in Manchester, Nashua, New Hampshire today whose entire business is done in the French language. Like, if you want to go, if you want to participate in one of these meetings, you better bring your French to the table. Absolutely. And that's very cool. All right. Now, something that I wanted to get a, to early on, because I think you're a really good person to talk to about this. Uh, when we started this podcast, I mentioned that seemingly for a long time, uh, the narrative may have even been the prevailing narrative was that the French culture is kind of dying in Manchester because that's where I'm from. That's that's all I know about it. But that it was it was obviously in a state of decline irreparable state of decline, there's nothing you can do about it, it's just a matter of time. If it's not dead, it's at least dying. And I think that narrative is very different now. I think the, the excitement that you see in Manchester is completely different. So I guess my question is a couple-fold. Well, wh- how did we get to where we are now? and What do you kind of foresee as the kind of the future of what we're trying to do here in the Franco-American Center? Uh, what the cultural identity kind of picture will look like going forward?
1: Wow, that that could be a whole show on its own, but uh, I think the important thing to uh, to note on this is that um, a lot of people over the past 100 years, 100, 100 plus years, or sure. probably getting close to 150, uh, were uh, involved in preserving and promoting their culture, and they did it in a certain way, and it worked for the time. But if you continue to do the same thing the same way, you'll gradually age out of uh, what really was the reason that you were doing what you were doing. We don't have a lot of first-generation immigrants right now. We don't necessarily need all the services that we did. But we do have people that are... Uh, young people that are interested in getting connected with their heritage. And so uh, it is a great opportunity for us to get younger people, people with families, young professionals, people that want to find out more. Tell me about when my my grandparents were growing up. Sure. What was their life like? And getting... Uh, my challenge, and the challenge for, and when I say my, I mean, there's a huge number of people involved with the Franco American Center that make this happen. Sure. And uh, the challenge is how do we make it relevant not only for people that are seniors, for people that are mid career, but for young people, and at the end of the day, people that are having children that are just starting to walk and talk. Sure and maybe might wanna learn how to say bonjour as well as hello. <laughs>
0: now, how do, you, how do you target those families?
1: Well, I think it's a matter of diversifying activities. We've been successful at the Franco-American Center over the past few years of creating more activities that engage a wider, more diverse group of people both from other countries that are uh, maybe not the traditional French-Canadian membership and also with uh, people that are looking to do a family activity that engages grandparents, parents, and the children.
0: That's very awesome. And I'm curious then maybe put your prognosticator hack, because one of the things I like to talk about is, you know, again, we're not dying, we're different. The, the culture changes over time. And I think that's probably the perspective that you come from, that this is going to, we're going to be changing, but we're still going to be here, still going to be very present. What do you see 20 years from now? What do you envision the Franco-American Center being?
1: Well, there's going to be an increase, of course, in uh, virtual or with technology. Sure. I think that we're going to be able to, um, to get more connection with other French people, both the French speakers and people who love all things French uh, from around the globe. I mean, as it is now, we find through the magic of Facebook that uh, the Franco-American Center is being followed not only by people in the United States, but from people in Canada, people in France, and and a variety of other places as well. And uh, so I see that we're going to maybe not be... A physical presence as much sure. as we're going to be a, a larger, more mobile, more flexible, more nimble organization that can meet needs across geographical areas.
0: Which is awesome. Now, what I'm curious, because obviously the Franco-American Center is a big deal in New Hampshire, but what are we doing to reach out to our friends in Massachusetts and Maine and Rhode Island, Connecticut? You know, How are we connecting with these other groups?
1: Well, it's a matter of trying to find these different groups and to offer them opportunities to collaborate. We're very involved with the American Association of Teachers of French, the New Hampshire uh, Association of World Language Teachers. Uh, So on the education end, we're engaged there. Of course, the Franco-American Center at Orrin Maine, has a tremendous program. Absolutely. Um, there's Franco-American Heritage Center up in Lewiston, French Cultural Center in Boston, Museum of Work and Culture in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. You mentioned the Richelieu, Richelieu Clubs already. And uh, so there's a lot of different groups. The thing is that we used to have this ability as French people in, uh, in New England to—we um, were numerous enough to be able to fight— among ourselves. <laughs> uh, There's a great word in French, chicaner. It's a verb, and it basically means to quarrel. Gotcha. And uh, les, les Canadiens français aiment chicaner. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we're now at a point where it's it's not a matter of if you're involved in the Lafayette Club, you can't be involved with the Joliette Club. Gotcha. Uh, it's a matter of trying to create those ties, collaborating and sharing our resources uh, in order to uh, make a stronger unit.
0: That's awesome. And I think I'm seeing that a lot now going forward, which is very cool, which is why I think it's incredibly exciting, Tom, uh, to be a Franco-American in New England right now. So,
1: I'm going to give you uh, one plug here. I love what you're doing with this podcast because (laughs) I think this is just the type of thing that we need to do to get the message out to a wider audience, and not the message of the Franco-American Center or the Richelieu Club or the French Cultural Center, but just the celebration of all things sure. French uh, here in New England and also throughout the world.
0: No, that's, thank you. I appreciate that. because. Like I was saying at the beginning, without your work, I don't know if the Franco-American—I know for a fact the Franco-American Center is not what it is now. And if the Franco-American Center was not what it is now, I don't think I would have ever reconnected uh, with my heritage and background. So, obviously, your work is hugely, hugely important to what we're trying to do here. So, really, really appreciate that. But before we go, we got to give you an opportunity. Somebody wants to get involved. Franco-American Center. What do you suggest they do? How do they get hold of you? What can they do?
1: Well, they can certainly look at our very active Facebook page or they can go to our website, which is FACNH.com, Franco American Center, New Hampshire dot com. Uh, or they can uh, send an email to execdirector at facnh.com, introduce themselves, say what they want to do. What do you want to see more of here in New Hampshire or uh, in the region? And uh, let's try and hook them up with people that want to make that happen.
0: And That's awesome because, I mean, we're going to sign off, but I think that's one of the cool things about the Franco-American Center I realized real early on. If you get an idea, you get something that you think is pretty cool that you want to run with. You come to the Franco-American Center and they're like, sure. If this is something that you want to do, we'll support you. We'll point you in the direction of maybe being able to pull it off and they give you the freedom to do it. And it's really, really awesome. Well, thank you so much, John, for joining us on the the podcast. This is super exciting. Uh, Appreciate it. Best of luck to you as you go forward with the Franco-American Center.
1: Thanks a lot, Jesse.
0: Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair to think that everything they love we simply
1: do not share. With the spirit dies our culture will survive each of us must choose how much to keep alive each of us must choose how much to keep alive special thanks to josie vashon for providing the music you can find more about her at josie this podcast was produced and edited by mike campbell if you have any questions or comments please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at FCL Podcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.
0: This program is recorded at the Concord TV podcasting studio. The views and opinions expressed during this podcast are not necessarily those of Concord TV. The producer is solely responsible for its content.